Okay. Got it. Great. Thank you. Um, I just want to begin this roundtable discussion about uh, Buddhism or Dharma and recovery by uh, having people introduce themselves. I'm going to call you out by name just because of the uh, Zoom format. And what I'm interested in hearing is not just uh, your name, but maybe what um, what Dharma informed practice you are using, if any, uh, in your recovery experience today. So um, maybe just saying a few words about that. And uh, also um, maybe uh, what your practice um, above and beyond recovery, uh, where that practice is coming from, what, what tradition or lineage you consider yourself associated with these days. Um, so just going around uh, the room on my screen, uh, I'm going to call on uh, the Reverend Joseph Rogers first. Hi. Nice to see you all. Um, so my name's Joseph and uh, I have about 25 years in recovery, starting with 12 step practice. Um, but I don't, I don't really um, identify with 12 step practice as a primary practice any longer. Um, but it was my sort of bridge into Dharma practice uh, in that the um, 11th step, which encourages prayer and meditation, uh, was my invitation to that practice when I stopped smoking at about seven years into my sobriety practice. Uh, and then the meditation piece sort of connected me to a community. That community connected me um, back to sort of this idea of engaging with uh, recovery and Dharma currently not engaged in any particular recovery community. I was involved with the founding of Refuge Recovery, uh, which fell apart and have not really connected with um, any sort of official uh, form except disconnected myself with Refuge Recovery. Um, and now I tend to sort of find individual groups that just where the, the members feel uh, like people that I want to connect to that have Dharma practice uh, and are also in recovery. And I would say that Dharma practice is my, is my primary recovery format, especially um, utilization of the, the five precepts, which includes the fifth precept of, of not taking intoxicants, uh, which lead to heedlessness. So I would say that those are, are the pieces that, that you asked about. Thank you, Joseph. 
That's great. Um, next on my screen is Tom. Yeah, hi, I'm Tom Moritz. Um, I'm uh, associated with University of the West, as are many people on the screen, <laughs> or several. Um, I uh, I'm identify as an alcoholic addict. I began drinking in 1965. I began using in 1966, and I began meditating with the Quakers in 1966. And the alcoholism and addiction went out for the neck until 1987. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. We could talk about that, of course. Actually, that might be useful to talk about. But um, I, I got sober in San Francisco in 1987, uh, and I've maintained continuous sobriety. Uh, I'm clean and, clean and sober for uh, 35 plus years now. Uh, I do go to AA meetings. But I've also done a Dhamma practice for a very long time too. I began, I, I, I switched over to Buddhism probably 1968 when my father died. And I, the, the, the nostrums that I was getting from the Christian religion that I was raised in just didn't provide any satisfaction or clear answers and Buddhism did. But as I said, I, my practice began with uh, some of the very early guys. Robert Aitken Roshi uh, was one of them. Three pillars of Zen, Philip Kaplow, those are the people that really uh, helped me, and Gary Snyder, to be fair. Gary Snyder also helped me a lot in early recovery. No, I'm sorry, in early, in early practice, I should be careful about that. And then when I joined AA, um, I, I was around Spirit Rock, I think, when Jack Hornfield first brought Thich Nhat Hanh there. I was actually there at a couple of those early, I can remember walking with them along the, the dirt roads up at Spirit Rock before it got so developed. In any event, um, there's a lot to say about all that, but that, that's probably enough. I've, I've been teaching at U.S. for, uh, I, this is my 10th year, I believe, 10th year, uh, teaching a basic course in Buddhist psychology and addictions at the graduate level, now in the psychology department, but I also teach basic environmental uh, basically two different courses in biodiversity and ecology and the other in uh, environmental studies. So I love the, the emphasis that I've seen in, in uh, the Mukti Vihara Code of Ethics. It clearly includes environmental stuff. So to me, it's all one. And kinship, the Sangha includes a kinship with all beings. So that's probably enough from Tom. <laughs> so. Thank you, Tom. Glad to have you here. Um, Jess, would you like to introduce yourself and give us an idea of your background and relationship to uh, Dharma and recovery? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Jess Lipman and I'm based in Portland, Oregon. I um, I entered recovery back in 2014 in Los Angeles, and I came through uh, the 12-step program originally. And I I found my way into recovery from discovering unified mindfulness in Los Angeles through Jessica Graham's drop-in group, and and then eventually against the stream is where I also sat while I was in recovery with George Haas, who's founder of Meta Group. And that's when I began my attachment healing 
journey through meditative uh, interventions. And let's see. And then prior to that, I was in active addiction for maybe 15 years. And I would say most of that, I had a teacher, um, Tara Brock, who I would sit with, you know, through her podcast. And that was my original introduction to secular Buddhism and meditation, as well as the Quaker community. So I found Quakerism in my early 20s. And um, but I was still in active addiction up until 2014. I would say Buddhism and meditation helped me become so aware of my suffering that I had um, this inclination to address it. <laughs> so meditation gave me the gift of painful awareness. And then it also gave me the tools to emotionally regulate what, you know, what I had been avoiding and um, applying aversion to for decades. And um, yeah, now today I'm very involved in unified mindfulness as a system, uh, as a practitioner, uh, and also as a mindfulness coach. And uh, I'm still very active on the meditative attachment healing journey. I find that to be very helpful for the underlying issues of my addiction and um, repairing long-term you know, some of those underlying unresolved trauma and parts uh, so that I can have a more unified, uh, harmonious experience as a human being. And uh, I guess I would say the traditions I would identify most with would be Mahasi because of the labeling and noting practice that is now central to unified mindfulness. And then Zen Buddhism, because I, I think Shinzen Young is very influenced by Zen. And I find that a lot of Zen has been integrated into the unified mindfulness system. So I think that's, that's me. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, <clears throat> I just want to note uh, for, for those of you who aren't aware, unified mindfulness is the meditation system. Um, sort of that has uh, evolved over the course of many years, but uh, through the teachings of Shenzhen Young, who's, who uh, has refined it. Um, and he's an interesting character because he straddles both the, the world of traditional Dharma. Uh, uh, he, he practiced at a monastery in Japan um, and was an early proponent of secular mindfulness. Um, and he's an active teacher in, in the States uh, today um, and who still, again, sort of straddles those two worlds. So he's an interesting character in that regard. Um, he teaches a secular mindfulness that's deeply informed by uh, Buddhist tradition. So uh, Gary, you are up. All right. It's good to be here. And uh, thank you, Corey, for inviting me. Uh, if you hear some crying in the background, it's my cat. <laughs> she really wants to come in here. <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Gary Sanders. I use the pronouns he and him. I'm in North Hollywood, California. Uh, although I am still on the teaching staff at Portland Insight Meditation Community up in Portland, Oregon. Um, it, interestingly, uh, Jess and I knew each other in LA. We both moved to Portland. <laughs> I've since moved back <laughs> a couple of years ago. 
And uh, yeah, so I still teach with, with Portland Insight. And um, I guess I do want to point out the main practice I do now is tranquil wisdom insight meditation that's taught through uh, Bhante Vimal Ramsey through Dhammasuka. And we could talk about that later if you want, but it's <laughs> supercharged my practice. <laughs> and my practice goes hand in hand with in my recover with my recovery. I got uh, I got sober in 07. I was with Joseph and we'd help start refuge recovery. I originally got sober in 12 step and the only way I could tolerate it was uh taking a Buddhist approach through the 12 steps. I found Kevin Griffin's book, One Breath at a Time. And so, you know, I successfully worked the steps uh, with a Buddhist approach. And then and then we started Refuge Recovery and that took off and did what it did. And then it fell apart and my heart was broken. And uh, I tried doing Recovery Dharma for a little bit, but I just, my heart wasn't in it. And yeah, I think kind of similar to to Joseph, I've I've kind of floated around. I went back to 12-step for a little while. I found a really supportive group in, in Portland called Knuckleheads, a, a men's AA group. Tremendous support, really, really uh, welcoming. And and, and uh, it's very blue-collar, but it's Portland, so it's very liberal. <laughs> it was a really great community. But, uh, you know, after moving down here, I, um, I really uh, have had trouble finding a, a recovery community that I found really supportive for me. I'm still very involved in teaching mindfulness and recovery. I still, uh, there's, you know, a bunch of stuff I do on Zoom uh, weekly for uh, uh, inpatient um, treatment centers and, and long-term treatment centers. And uh, most of those I teach in a, in a, in line with the 12 steps because that's the program that's taught in these, these centers. And, and again, I've, I've, you know, just personally, I found no real difficulty in working the steps with a, a Buddhist approach. And that said, <laughs> personally, I don't have any interest in the 12 steps at all anymore. <laughs> I, I think my, my personal practice is more than enough to keep me sober. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll have 15 years next Tuesday, so a handful of days. And uh, the the compulsion to drink or use is long gone. I would say I'm recovered, but um, I'm still recovering from the human condition. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much, Gary. Um, John, I'd love to hear your uh, by the way, in case those of you who don't know, John is sort of the spark uh, that brought together this conference originally, John Fries, and um, uh, the driving force. Uh, um, so, be, along with Chris Johnson, uh, behind the conference, and is also uh, a member of our recovery community through Mukti Vihara, our online uh, Buddhist temple uh, registered registered religious organization. So um, John, uh, take it away. Okay. Um, 
So I, I grew up in Texas and my family wasn't religious, so we didn't go to church or anything. Um, and my family was like liberal around, like we, when I was like starting around 15, like if we would go out to dinner, we could like, we could have a drink with my parents at dinner and things like that. Um, and then, so like high school and college, I was like drinking, smoking weed, taking psychedelics. Um, but I was functional. I didn't, I stayed in school. Um, I had relationships. Um, and then after college, I went to see this guru. Well, I started meditating in college. So that's when I got into meditation. So that was at Zen Mountain Monastery in, in Woodstock, New York. Um, and so that John Dadalori Roshi um, taught me the practice of counting the breath while focusing on the hara. And so that's been one of my main practices that I've um, kept up with. Um, and then after college, I went to Europe and I saw Mother Mira, who's a guru from India, but she lives in Germany. Um, and I had a spiritual experience that made me feel like um, spiritual awakening is possible and it's something I would like to uh, have happen. Um, and so then, but she didn't, she didn't have an ashram, so I couldn't, I couldn't move in with Mother Mira. So she, you know, I had this experience and then kicked me out of the nest kind of thing. Um, so then I got back to Texas and I was running a room from someone who had some books on Taoism and Taoist internal alchemy. And so then I basically just started engaging in a practice where I'm having sex, but I'm uh, not having a normal orgasm. I'm trying to channel the energy. Um, and so my partner who was practicing with me doing that, she was also into Thich Nhat Hanh. So we started going to see um, Thich Nhat Hanh. And it, it felt like somehow like through our Taoist practice, like we we're doing something energetically to where when we went to see Thich Nhat Hanh for a 21-day retreat, uh, we both decided to ordain as monastics. So it felt like somehow we had sublimated our sexual energy to a degree that we were vulnerable to becoming monastics somehow. Like it, um, it, it, it seems like that was the sequence of events that happened. Um, and that somehow that it was a progression of some kind. So then, so then when I became a monastic, then it was keeping the precepts in the Vietnamese tradition. So no intoxicants, no meat, um, complete celibacy. Um, and then the other precepts that go with it. And so it, I had the feeling that as a monk, it's like, okay, I'm trying to uproot the deep habit energies that cause rebirth and like through the practice of renunciation and meditation and being with a spiritual teacher that that was a practice of, I saw it as like um, 
trying to overcome the addiction of samsara through the practice of precepts and meditation and um, spiritual community. Um, so, so I guess I'm seeing the precepts as having like different ways that they can be experienced and um, anyway, long story short, I ended up spending some time in India and I was with some gurus in India and then I, I was a monk for 12 years and then I decided I wanted to return back to lay life. And um, so then I kind of like in my re-entry into lay life, uh, like pornography, I realized pornography had made great advances while I was in uh, being a monk for 12 years. Um, so I kind of got overwhelmed and freaked out by that. So I started going to um, a sex addicts 12 step group um, so that I could talk about porn and dealing with porn. Um, and there were two different groups. One was like the Christian homophobic one where you have to be married. And then one was um, the more inclusive one that um, the, it, it was an interesting group because you, you would define your own sobriety. It was different for every person there, but you would define what your sobriety was. And then you would work with the group to maintain that sobriety. Um, so I did that for a while, and then it seems like my experience is if I'm if I'm in a relationship with somebody, then that tends to stabilize my sexual experience, and I and then I don't tend to be compulsive with pornography. Um, so I would kind of go back and forth between being in a relationship or being attending a twelve step group um, around that, um, and then so. Yeah, so then, so for me, then the other issue then is uh, alcohol and marijuana and psychedelics. So I currently use those things recreationally, but I'm having doubts about um, how often I do that. So I'm still, it's still an open question about is, does that work for me or not? Um, so, for example, I, I I was just in Europe because my brother got married, and uh, so I was I didn't have any access to marijuana while I was in Europe, and I got more writing done than I had uh, <laughs> uh, while I was back here in the states. Um, so I'm just seeing how much more clear my mind gets and how more productive I am if I'm not smoking marijuana. Um, so anyway, so I, I I wanted to be in community with people around the five precepts as a way to just continue as a Buddhist practice where I feel like I'm trying to become liberated from samsara. And so working with the precepts and working with renunciation feels like that's always a core element. And then that it also feels like it's directly related to my experience of love and intimacy with myself and others and um, cultivating wholesome states of body and mind and so then when Corey and i and the group of us that are creating this buddhist organization got together um we 
we thought we could have a Buddhist recovery group that focuses on the five precepts. Um, and so that way I could talk about all of my compulsive behaviors in one place. I didn't have to uh, separate them into separate uh, different groups. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I had the kind of blessing and curse of like not having felt like I had gotten addicted to the point where I had to make make a strict call to be complete completely abstinent. Um, and so then I, I feel like I'm more a gray zone practitioner when it comes to um, drinking and marijuana and psychedelics. Um, so um, yeah, so that that's my overall uh, spiel. Thank you, John. Um, so I'll, I'll do a brief. I wanted to wrap up the introductions by uh, 1.30. So I'll do a, a brief uh, introduction of myself. As you most of you know, my name is Corey. Um, uh, I am 15 years sober. I got sober the same year as Gary, 2007. And um, I have been practicing uh, Buddhist meditation in one form or another since I was about 12. Um, as, as Jess noted, um, you know, childhood trauma is a big part of my story. Uh, and, and so I definitely am one of those people who believes that um, some of my addictive behavior compulsions are rooted in that childhood trauma. But also my practice is very much rooted in that childhood trauma in that by the time I was 12 and was introduced to Buddhism, um, I, I was ready for it. I needed it. I was already uh, kind of on the edge of getting into trouble and doing some pretty, um, engaging in some pretty harmful activities. And um, Buddhism, uh, immediately drew me in uh, mostly I think because of the sort of straightforward message of this notion that that suffering does exist I I, I wasn't aware of I didn't have any experience um, with Christianity or very very little I, I wasn't really that aware of uh, religion but from what I had seen my engagements with with religious people in my life um, uh, there seemed to be sort of a facade, like a, a sort of cheerfulness or a facade. Um, and when I did, what I did see behind the facade uh, was unpleasant. Um, you know, it was teachers who beat me because I didn't believe in Jesus or uh, things like this. And so um, I wasn't particularly interested in those organizations, but, but, but when I, encountered Buddhism and there was this discussion of suffering and the end of suffering, that made sense to me. That was something that I could relate to based on my uh, early childhood experiences. Um, and so early on in my practice, uh, I was very dedicated and I had what we might call a Kensho moment, um, something like what John was talking about, where uh, I had this, this moment of sort of clarity. Um, 
And it kind of sent me into a tailspin at, at, I was probably about 13 or 14 at the time, kind of, uh, I didn't really have a lot of context for it. I didn't have a live teacher. I taught myself uh, Soto Zen meditation style through reading. And it wouldn't be for a couple more years before I was able to engage with live tre uh, teachers. I grew up in um, rural Alaska. Uh, and so I practiced, on, continued practicing on and off and had another similar moment at about 16. Uh, at that time, I lived in Seattle. Um, and again, it kind of uh, context, it was very difficult to place in context. And, uh, and so my experience was a little bit of uh, what Shinsen Young might call, uh, refer to as, you know, the dark night of the soul. It was a, a period of depression uh, related to my meditation. And coming out of that, I decided I would try something else. And the something else I tried was drinking uh, alcohol for the first time. I'd really been sort of a fifth precept kind of straight edge kid. And uh, I decided I was going to do what other people did. I'd left home at uh, 15. And so at 19, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to do what kids do, which is party. And so I drank. Um, and my first experience of drinking led to a blackout uh, and, um, and throwing up all over my friend's car and all those sorts of things that people have experienced. And my response to that was awesome. I'm, this is my new practice. And, uh, within six months I had, uh, you know, used, uh, acid, mushrooms, pot, uh, ketamine and heroin. Um, so I was really off to the races. I continued to practice meditating. I, I moved to San Francisco and I continued to practice meditating at the same time that my using was increasing. So similar to what Tom was saying, you know, I was a practicing uh, spiritual devotee of, medita of meditation and, and Buddhism in particular. Um, and I was also very committed to my drinking and using and um, the drinking and using really won out. The meditation became secondary. And it was like that for many years. Uh, and then, you know, 2007, after a series of meditation retreats and trying to use that as a, as a springboard for quitting, I finally realized I just didn't have uh, the individual wherewithal to disengage from my addictions. And I walked into a 12-step meeting. Um, and that uh, has, has fortunately been, you know, I've been sober since that, since that day. But I will say that after a few years in 12-step, um, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was getting enough in terms of sort of spiritual food. And I turned to refuge recovery. Now, during this time, I, I started a meditation meeting at my house in Los Angeles and invited, uh, some of you may know Michael Taft, um, invited Michael Taft to my house to teach meditation with, uh, with my then partner, Jessica Graham. And, um, and that was through the Shenzhen Unified uh, sort of mindfulness uh, school of meditation. And it was a big, it was a very... Uh, eye-opening moment, the techniques that Shinzen offered changed, shifted my, um, you know, his, his sort of uh, 
uh, shamatha vipassana uh, marriage along with sort of uh, secular uh, insight and Zen um, was kind of a perfect formula for my meditation to really take off and to bring me back to my Buddhist practices. Um, so, you know, while the 12 step worked for me initially, after a few years, I just wanted something more. And so I ended up at Refuge Recovery, um, where I met Gary. Um, eventually, through Refuge Recovery, I think I met Tom. Uh, and, um, and Joseph and I were people who had known each other uh, through 12 step, uh, and, and then eventually um, reunited in, in Refuge Recovery and co-founded a Refuge Recovery meeting early on. Um, so that's sort of my background. These days I'm doing, I'm leading this fifth precept meeting. It's a small meeting um, and we're kind of tackling it from, uh, you know, under the banner of um, samsara addicts, which is a broad tent. And I want to talk about that a little bit if I, if I could get some feedback from uh, some of you about the sort of broad tent of uh, Buddhist or Dharma-based recovery meetings. Uh, you know, most of us are familiar with 12-step meetings and the way that uh, they've become um, so very focused in what they're engaging with. So, you know, we have um, debtors anonymous, sex and love addicts, uh, narcotics, cocaine, marijuana, alcohol, just about anything you can name, you know, gambling. There's a there's a dedicated 12-step program for just about everything you can name uh, in the realm of addiction. Uh, but with the, with the Dharma-based recovery systems, we tend to have that, you know, it's all samsara. And I'm wondering if, what people's experiences, if, if, if we could just have a couple people share maybe about that and what their experiences of that and what the pluses and minuses of that might be, um, if anybody has some thoughts on that. I'm going to call a name. I can go, Corey. Yeah, please. So as far as the pros of a, uh, a Buddhist-based recovery program that's applied to all addictions, um, I just like the fact that, you know, we maybe uh, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, we say that, uh, you know, Buddhist recovery is the world's oldest recovery program. It's 2,600 years old. It's proven. <laughs> so many people have, have found... Uh, uh, relief from it. I mean, you know, and if you only replace the word dukkha with addiction, right? The Four Noble Truths. In, the, in this life, there is addiction. There's a cause of this addiction. It's clinging or, or, or uh, <laughs> unquenchable thirst, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, third Noble Truth, the good news, right? There's relief from addiction to be known. And the Fourth Noble Truth, there's a path. And this path, you know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, is uh, could be completely in line with, not in a opposition to 12-step, but um, certainly a, a broader, more uh, revolutionary, more healing, more more um, effective path than, than merely the 12 steps. You know, the Buddhist path of living ethically, 
of training your mind and cultivating wisdom. And so, um, you know, and I also, I come from the, the school of thought that, um, you know, if we, you know, we show up to, to the, whatever room, you know, whether it's a Dharma group or, you know, 12 step or uh, I don't know, smart recovery, whatever, we show up because we are suffering because we have lost control and we need some help. And, uh, you know, so we get sober and we put down that thing. And this is where I think, you know, 12 step falls short. If you, you just put down the, the alcohol, you just put down the drugs many times. Uh, and I've seen this again and again and again, and I experienced it in early sobriety myself, that, that tendency for, for compulsion, for obsession, for, escaping the present moment just gets redirected in a different way. You know, you put down the drugs and alcohol, but then there's sex and there's gambling, there's compulsive shopping. There's, uh, um, as mentioned earlier, internet porn, <laughs> a million other, you know, we start doing the whack-a-mole thing. So, so that's where I think Buddhist recovery really gets it right because we have to look at everything, not just the, you know, I, I, I didn't complete my thought earlier, but I have the, the, I come from the school of thought that just putting down the drugs and alcohol, those, those, those are just symptoms of the greater problem. And, and that's where to, to experience emotional sobriety, to ex, uh, uh, experience freedom, we have to address those deeper issues. And, you know, that, those are the advantages I've found of the Buddhist path. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you. I really appreciate that insight. Uh, particularly this, you know, where, where the 12 step, uh, 12 steps fall short, uh, in maybe sort of a narrow, you know, a narrow definition of where our suffering is coming from. Um, you know, I definitely see a tendency, um, maybe less in the literature and more within the context of certain recovery communities where there's sort of a very narrow focus on if I can just disengage from this one activity, um, I will, I will address all of my suffering. Um, love to hear from uh, some other folks on this issue. Joseph and uh, Jess have their hands raised. I don't know if you can see that or not. I, I actually can't. I think that's probably on your screen, not on mine. Okay. So, uh, I, yeah. yeah, please, uh, Jess. Hi. Um, I'll lower my hand. Um, yeah, I love this question and I, I have experience. I don't, I forgot to mention earlier, but I, um, I was very active in recovery Dharma program from 2019 until about last year. And then before that, I was pretty active for like two or three years in refuge recovery. And I also have been in uh, 12 step programs, a few different um, affinity groups since 2014. So I've been in them all <laughs> and gotten to see the lay of the land. Um, I'm more of like a, I, I collect and I've I mentioned I'm in like I'm into Quakerism. So I, I I don't really subscribe to just one thing. Oftentimes I'll I'll, you know, glean what feels meaningful and important and um you know, and let go of the rest kind of thing. They encourage you to do that in 12 step, which I find very helpful to engage that program. So um, 
I really, um, what, what you said, Gary really resonates and feels true to me. There's this like root suffering that we all are experiencing when we are struggling with addiction. And, and that is really meaningful to sit in a sangha with people who can all acknowledge that and are committing to the actions, the, the meditation techniques and principles that lead to the end of that suffering. And what I would say is that, you know, the end of suffering is informed by a quality of impermanence that there's not this permanent end, but rather this contacting the end of suffering and noticing it arising and passing and that quality of relief that we can glean from the impermanence. Um, and my experience, you know, what brought me to refuge recovery and recovery Dharma was really the Sangha aspect of it. This idea to sit with people in community who are committed to meditating on this path of addiction recovery. Um, the principles of Buddhism really resonate, but it wasn't what drew me in necessarily. I find 12-step program to be really impactful in a different way um, or in a Sangha sense, but in, I actually think the, the niche quality of 12 step is what keeps me there because when I was really active in recovery, Dharma and refuge recovery, I found it hard in the Sangha sitting together in meetings to root into something specific, some it was there's a there's a quality of specificity of pain that I didn't find very present in those rooms that I find very present in 12 step that's really meaningful. Like, for example, I'm active in adult children of alcoholics and dysfunction. That program is very specific um, when it comes to the, the pain and the flavor of suffering that we all experience in that room. And that specificity really gives me a sense of belonging and helps me root into the solutions of that program, but also root into a way of meditating that heals it. And I, I haven't yet found that in a Buddhist path of recovery. Um, and it's not good, bad, or it's just neutral. It's just a thing, but it's what keeps me going to 12 step meetings is the specificity, uh, at least with that particular, that community, that, that, um, that meeting and, um, you know, like what that, that Sangha lacks is like this commitment to the, like a very specific 11th step, like what, you know, the Buddhist path, like I'm pretty sure most Buddhist paths to addiction recovery are centered on this action of meditating and committing to specific techniques and practice that, that creates conditions of orienting toward your reality in a way that increases fulfillment as a way to put it. <laughs> so that's not, you know, that's not necessarily what's taught in 12 step, but yeah, I just wanted to share that there's this affinity quality that even when I was really active in recovery Dharma, I thought like, what would it be like to create an affinity group for ACA in recovery Dharma to unify those uh, principles and steps with this very specific quality of childhood trauma that I've experienced. And, you know, I, I thought about it, I just never, you know, took the reins on it, but it's something that I've thought like, you know, that's something that 12 step, I think does really well. 
um, and and creates a quite enduring experience over there. So just thought I'd share that. Um, so Tom has his hand up. Uh, Joseph, I think, had his hand up, but I'm not sure if it's still up anymore. I, I took it down because Corey said he couldn't see it. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, so your hand was, was up. Go ahead, yeah. Joseph, if you want. You go first. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Take it, Joseph. Um, you know, it, I found my in my own experience with 12 Steps that the um, specificity also um, led to a lack of compassion at times. Um, when I, you know, stated my intention that I was going to give up uh, nicotine uh, at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, people would throw cigarettes at me or offer them to me on, on the break. Um, and, and I think there's oftentimes sort of that comparison. It's like, oh, you're an alcoholic. You're not a real drug addict. You know, I did heroin, uh, sort of junky pride that, that can come up. Um, and, and I always struggled with that. Um, you know, and one thing that I did love about the early refuge recovery meetings, because we made that intention not to identify by our, by our, our specific addictions, right? But um, that, that, that welcome people into our community that maybe wouldn't normally feel welcome, like, oh, I'm not enough of an addict. Um, I remember Corey at our, at our Saturday meeting there was a guy who was like, I'm addicted to anger and that's why I'm here and there's no place else for me to go. Uh, and that's what he worked on. Um, but, I, but I agree that, that sometimes the, the need for specificity is there. Um, I worked with a, a gentleman who uh, had a sex addiction and approached me for mentorship in refuge recovery. And it's just not something that I had experience with. And I did take him through a process. And I do think that that was helpful. But ultimately, we said, hey, you should probably also go to, you know, um, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous group, because that's where you can connect with people in, in a way that I can't. So I, I do agree that, you know, there are benefits and drawbacks uh, for, for both. Uh, your hand is up. Thank you, John. <laughs> First, I, you know, I just want to say something. I feel identity and affinity with, with virtually everything that's been said here. I just want to put that out there. I don't find conflicts with any of it. And it's, uh, I'm not shocked, let's also put it that way, by anything anybody said here. Um, to, and I want to underscore what I heard Gary say, which is that, isn't it quite amazing that now, what, 2,600 years ago, the fifth precept, is sobriety. What does that tell us about the Buddha's own experience of growing up in a relatively affluent caste in India and what he experienced as he taught for over 40 years? Think of the mental illness that he saw, because mental illness was, of course, a reality. There's some studies, I don't know if you guys ever looked at mental illness in India 2,500 years ago. You know, addictions of all sorts, everything that's been talked about on the screen people were experiencing. And in fact, there are often suttas that address them, including sex addiction. I mean, there's some amazing, amazing teachings in our tradition. Uh, but, what, but what I also wanna say is I've been, um, I don't, I just don't feel, I, I just don't have a problem. <laughs> I don't have a problem with 12 step. It's what all of it is, all we're talking about is what we, I think one way to describe it in therapeutic terms is what we call co-regulation, right? 
we, we love and support each other in the process of struggling and whatever systems work best for us, how, however that works out. And I've gone to a lot of agnostic uh, and atheist and agnostic AA meetings. There are such many of them in West LA, of course, and in New York and elsewhere, all over the place. In fact, uh, you know, it's been, I've sometimes felt like, like I was the apostle to the atheist, you know, <laughs> But I'm not, you know, I don't believe in a God in that, in any conventional sense, you know. So, so I guess what I really want to say is that I, I, I think the path, what I encourage people to do at all times is to keep testing, keep sampling, finding the paths that work for you. And, uh, you know, the 12th step in the 12th tradition, you know, the, in the 12th, 12th of the 12 steps does say we practice these principles in all our affairs. In early recovery, I sampled all the programs. I thought, man, I think about sex a lot. I better go check that out. And I went. And when I heard the stories, I thought, well, no, I don't really qualify here. I'm not in that league. But I, but it was important for me to understand that. I'm, I'm saying, and I'm debtors anonymous, uh, you, know, you know, take your pick, ACA, you know, ACOA, Al-Anon. I had an Al-Anon sponsor. I've done a lot of these things. And, you know, ultimately the goal is the same, I think. And our teaching is so inspired, you know, and the, the, the four... The three principles in dependent origination, you know, of contact, craving, and clinging, seem to apply in just about all of those cases, all of these sub, all these issues that we're talking about, you know, in different ways. It's great insight for me when I realized that, you know, I like, by the way, I like to describe myself as an alcohol-induced narcissist. That was my experience. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's quite an insight when we realize that it's all, it does come back to self-centeredness. We're all on, in, on different places on that narcissistic spectrum, all human beings, in my opinion. And I'll just wind up by, you know, one of, to me, one of the great teachings that comes out of the 12 and 12 is pointing us to varieties of religious experience by William James, which is a brilliant text and a brilliant text of comparative religion, which puts all religion in context. Actually, if you read it, it's the only book name by name in the 12-step program in the, in the literature that I'm aware of. And it points us to looking at everything in, in relative terms. James said, so long as the egoistic worries of the sick soul guards the door, the expansive confidence of the soul of faith can find no presence. That's brilliant. That, and that's in his chapter on conversion. It's not talking about alcohol or drugs or anything. It's just talking about conversion. The egoistic worries of the sick soul guard the door. So anyway, you know, I got too much to say about all this. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, there's absolutely no problem with that. That's why you're here, because uh, you have something to say. So I, I, I only wanted people who were opinionated. <laughs> Sir. Uh, <laughs> would you would you would you mind having Tom repeat that text name, please? Sure, uh, I can tell you exactly where it is too. If you find the digital version of Varieties of Religious Experience, it's on page two twelve. I'll put it in the chat. Yeah, we we got the chat today. But it says, as long as the egoistic worries of the sick soul guards the door, the expansive confidence of the soul of faith can find no presence. So. He's basically saying, you know, self-centeredness, attachment to self is the fundamental problem. And, and that's from the, what? That's from the varieties of religious experience. Varieties. Of, okay, I, I wasn't getting that. Thank available you. for free. You can get it for free online. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Tom.
Anybody, uh, John, does anybody else have their uh, hand up that I cannot see right now? Uh, no. Uh, Corey, no can I double dip? Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> so it just made me, uh, hearing all of this made me think of the cons of, of uh, Buddhist recovery. The thing that I, you know, uh, again, Joseph and I helped found Refuge Recovery, and the people that were most successful in it, came from 12 step they'd already been working the 12 steps and then they came to us and they started working on a, a meditation practice and and diving deeper into a you know you could call it a spiritual practice um what i saw what i you know founding refuge recovery and then as the years went on and and i was a little bit involved with recovery dharma when it first started um and i think recovery dharma tried to be a little bit better but refuge recovery was not trauma informed at all so the 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 person that was like coming that fresh into the rooms with like no experience at all um asking them to sit down and sit still <laughs> asking them to do a concentration practice when they're crawling out of their skin i think is just that's one of the worst things to to do and it's a you know it makes it a huge hurdle for people even though there's like no shame or you know very little shame compared to other programs that like you know, we're asking them to do something that's really, really difficult. So, um, the you know, and there's no real um, support that's not not in great detail in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but in that program through the years, the culture has created an atmosphere that is very supportive for the the new addicts, the new the new alcoholics coming in. So, that's that's my hope with Buddhist recovery to find a scientific-based trauma-informed way to help the new new people coming in yeah that's a great it's a great point and it leads me to one of the questions uh, one of the prompts that i that i had sent out which is you know what experiences do do we have in terms of mentoring in dharma-based recovery programs and what are the what are the sort of the um you know, what are the pros and cons of that and, and what kind of challenges have we maybe seen? You know, most of these programs, um, you know, we're going back, if, if we look back at say, Darren, uh, Little John uh, or Kevin Griffin or stuff, we're, we're talking about relatively recent um, publications and, and proposals for uh, Dharma-based recovery or, or Dharma and 12-step recovery combined. And so, um, you know, I, I, I feel it's all still very much in an experimental stage. So, you know, the question is, is if we take a breath, stand back and kind of look at where we're at at this point, what has been working and what is not? And Gary, you bring up a, a, something really concise and, and insightful, which is, you know, that refuge recovery in its, uh, you know, and I haven't been involved in refuge recovery for a number of years, but in its initial form, certainly it, um, while it was very welcoming and very gentle and lighthearted in many ways, and in some ways less sort of judgmental than it could feel like in, in certain kinds of 12-step programs. At the same time, it didn't have the same sort of collective wisdom built into it yet. And it, and it didn't have in the text itself, it didn't really do, um, you know, there, there's some areas where it might have not really looked at that, um, 
you know, the, the sort of trauma that people were, were coming to the program with. Um, and, and, you know, Joseph was there, I, I think, witness to the early founding of refuge recovery. And he might be able to speak to if, I, if I'm missing something uh, within that program. But um, it is something, you know, brings up a question where, um, you know, what kind of challenges do we think are specific maybe to our experiences with mentoring people in Dharma-based recovery programs? Corey, I want to I want to jump in really quickly with just one point. Um, you mentioned sort of like the the newer history of Buddhist based recovery, um, but Sogo Gakkai has been offering um, recovery based communities since the 1970s, uh, and is still probably the largest Dharma recovery program in the world, to my knowledge. Um, and I would say one of their successes. Um, has been exactly in, in many ways what uh, AA has done is that they are incredibly supportive of, of newcomers, um, that they make sure that they call the newcomer, that they give them rides, that they make sure that they have food, that they have a place to live, that they, that they embed them in, in, a, in an overall community um, that, is, that is supportive. And I think um, all of the people who have sort of attempted to start uh, a lot of these recovery programs, a lot of it has been sort of ego-based, like here's my book with my program and I'm gonna sell this rather than being embedded in, in something larger. Um, and so of course, when, you know, against the stream and the sort of larger community fell apart, of course, refuge recovery, I think diminished because that was where a lot of that um, uh, connection was coming from. So I think that, um, that's one piece that I think is, is gonna be necessary is there has to be something that people can embed in, uh, something that, that they really feel, you know, sort of wrap around support. Yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, that's a, definitely a topic to keep revisiting, which is, um, you know, the, the, this issue of Sangha or, or um, Parisa, you know, or community. And of course, you know, those of us who are um, familiar with um, the Buddhist suttas will tend, you know, tend to think of uh, the Buddha and Ananda having that conversation about spiritual friendship, you know, where, where Ananda says, you know, I've heard that spiritual friendship is is half of the practice and and the buddha admonishes ananda and says oh no you've got it all wrong it's a hundred percent of the practice it's, it's all of the practice and and it is what 12 step does so well is that it, that sense of when you come into 12 step you just get embraced there may be people you don't like there there may be people who ignore you there there may be people there who are even predatory but there is an there's enough community and there's enough continuity enough history and there's a real sense of it's a place where you can land and you can have nothing and that you will be picked up and embraced by that community and uh, and um and you know there's a, a sense of if you will salvation within sangha uh 
and maybe we're not fully there yet in in uh, our Dharma recovery programs. Or as Joseph points out, you know, it's it just, it's worth investigating what kind of problems arise when a recovery program is based on a personality or based on a specific book that is a you know a for-profit um you know sales pitch um and where that might be um tripping us up a little bit in in dharma-based recovery systems but i do want to just uh, on the topic of sort of mentoring people i do want to touch bases with anybody else and see if anybody has anything to add about um, that experience of mentoring in in Dharma recovery programs, if anybody has anything to say about that. Gary is physically raising his hand. Tom's physically raising his hand. Um, I'll uh, pass the torch to you. Gary, you can go if you want. <laughs> I'm laughing too hard. You go, Tom. <laughs> All right, Tom, take it away. All right, thanks. Yeah, thank you, Gary. All right, um, just quick, I didn't mention my introduction. I've been uh, working down at Homeboy Industries for about eight years now, I think, uh, helping to teach meditation classes to homeboys and homegirls. And um, that has been a revelation in itself. Uh, and one of my students, uh, which is not in any way a judgment of him, is now our chaplain at Homeboy Industries. <laughs> so, And he's a he's korean american um you know it's uh it's an interesting challenge to me and, and i've got an act uh, i've got a, a a man in recovery down in san diego right now who's seeking a buddhist path through the 12 steps and he's doing both you know he's doing both of those things i talk to him almost every well several times a week and we we have a traditional sponsor sponsor relationship what I do, and I'll just say this quickly, I, I've made some adjustments in the way that I, for example, uh, in the 12 steps, they use the serenity prayer. I've changed that in some cases to say, instead of God grant us, I say, we seek the serenity to accept the things we cannot change. That's all, just take God out of it, to say, we seek the serenity. And the prayer is fine, right? I also practice what I call intransitive prayer. I'm not praying to, I cut, Thich Nhat Hanh in his book, The Energy of Prayer, points us in that direction. I just simply state my aspirations and my intentions for myself and for others. And so I, you know, I, and so I don't, I don't practice petition, prayer, prayer petition in that sense. I also uh, have adapted the three, the five precepts so that when I meditate, I start my meditation by putting my hand over my heart. And Bhikkhu Bodhi gave me five words, right? To, Harmless, honest, faithful, truthful, sober. Harmless, honest, faithful, truthful, sober. And I start my meditation practice with that as a way of dedicating, and, and that's in the 11-step context and 12-step. I've adapted some traditional blessings in the 12 steps that suggest we praise, we pray for those uh, that we have resentments for. Well, I've extended that to really full-blown blessings for people that I, I develop a resentment for. And I would say, and the acceptance part of AA, I make clear that acceptance means things do happen for a reason, karmically, but they don't happen for a purpose. There is no God out there pulling strings and making things happen. 
It's not teleological. So all of these things are ways that I've started to work through the 12 steps and provide what I think are dharmic. But you know, it's a lot of work, right? And if you can do it the other way, and if you can do it through Dharma recovery or you know refuge Dharma, and by the way, our AA meeting met at Against the Stream. We're in our 16th year of meeting. We meditate 20 minutes on a daily basis in an AA context, and it started out at Against the Stream. Thanks mostly to Mary St. Gavage, of course. Um, but yeah, you know, it. I, as I said earlier, I don't see a contradiction. I don't have a problem. And I don't see a problem. But it does require some imagination and some adaptation to that. So that's it. Thanks. I hope that makes some kind of sense. I don't know. Uh, yeah, sure, Tom. <laughs> yeah, that that makes perfect sense. You know, it it, it, it you know it's a question. I think you know um, there's there's a question about how we as individuals who are mentoring people in recovery. You know, there's a I think there's a lot of ideas about the right way to do it in AA, but I don't know if there is a right way. You know, it, it's relational, and it and it has to be. Uh, you know, as a Buddhist, of course, I ha I tend to think of it, it, it has to be of the moment. You know, I can't cling to notions of the right way to mentor somebody is this way or the right way to do it is that way. Uh, it has to be based off of the actual relationship I'm having with somebody. And, um, you know, I think I think hopefully a good Dharma recovery program is, is vested in that notion that, you know, there's multiple ways to mentor somebody through the recovery process. Um, but Gary, you had your hand up and it looks like you've, whatever was going on is settled. Yeah, <laughs> the, the redness, the blood in my face is <laughs> flowed back down into my body. Um, I, I have to say, my, you know, my teacher Robert Beatty at Portland Insight and I uh, both agree that uh, you got to find humor on this path. <laughs> you got to have fun with it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, whether it's sponsoring, and I'm going to use the term guys, because specifically, I've only I've only sponsored mentored men in in recovery. So, uh, sponsoring guys or mentoring guys in in Buddhist recovery, my success rate sucks. And I, I, I've, I've yet to know anybody that has like a tremendous success rate in, in sponsoring or mentoring people. That said, well, and I guess in 12 step, when I, when I, towards the end of me being in 12 step, uh, more and more and more, the, the thing that I found most effective for anybody, and, and the only people I wanted to work with in 12 step are ones that really wanted to work on their meditation practice. Um, that I found more effective. Um, it was just more interesting to me, and I think I could help people more. And uh, you know, and mentoring people in Buddhist recovery specifically, the guys that have actually done the work and have committed to it have made tremendous changes, like uh, paradigm changing, um, uh, you know, awareness, presence, um, equanimity. You know, there, there's there's a there's a handful of guys I am just so incredibly uh, impressed with, and I helped them. I think early on, but like you know, they're the ones that do the work. I didn't meditate for them. <laughs> I gave them some books and I pointed them away. I gave them some techniques, and and they they started going on retreats and they you know got their their own practice deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know, um, again, that's a handful. Uh, there, there's a whole lot more that. 
either weren't willing or just couldn't actually do the work that it takes, you know, in sobriety. I, I can't speak for anybody else, but I know for me that, you know, and this is, this is again, uh, one way to look at that this has to do with sort of attachment and impermanence and, you know, my experience, whether it's in 12 step or in a Buddhist based recovery is that's just the nature of the beast, you know, that those of us who do, uh, you know, um, get into recovery and maintain a recovery practice where whatever it's based in um, and, and manage to, to continue with that. Um, you know, we, we, we're actually rarer than we even think we are. Um, you know, so I, I, I would assume that whichever practice you're coming from, nine out of 10, you know, that's just, that's just kind of it. And which brings up the question, maybe there's a question there about what are we not getting right? What are we, what are we missing? Um, Joseph, I do, I actually can see your hand up now. Um, I want to kind of touch on both of those questions. Um, I still uh, mentor uh, a number of guys. Um, one of the one of the ways that I mentor people is that um, I, I never fire myself. I only allow the other person to fire me. And what that means is that um, it doesn't matter for me um, how often people might have what is called a, a relapse. If they're willing to continue to engage in the work and want to engage with me, um, I will continue to show up with them. I, I think that I don't really like that the version of you know sobriety that says you know absolutely Abstinence is success and no abstinence is not success. I, th I think that's a, a, a hurtful model. Um, but the, 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 the men who come to me and, and want to work with me um, are struggling with the same problem that the men who worked with me and came to me when I, when I had 12-step uh, uh, sponsees, which is, you know, it's really a struggle to um, engage with meaning. And um, I... Personally, I think one of the areas that uh, I, I question uh, is this idea that Buddhism is scientific, materialistic, or atheistic, and I think it's none of those things. Um, I think it's animistic, perhaps rather than theistic, um, but uh, is certainly magical in in many ways. And if you if you read um, the actual source material, it's alive in this world of meaning and. One of my own journeys uh, in recovery has been, you know, coming back into aliveness with uh, with the world and the universe around me, um, and I and I still think that that's that's a struggle that people have. Um, they've been, you know, sort of sold this dead materialistic view, and I think that we we don't serve. Um, recovery well when we try to bring that view and say, hey, if this isn't backed scientifically, then it's not real. Um, I think that that we have to acknowledge these experiences, like Gary's talking about, that are that are really shifting our perspective and and maintain that that is actually the the approach. Because I do think that that Buddhist recovery um, programs have that in common with twelve step that. That this idea that some sort of spiritual um, meaning shift has to has to occur, 
And so I think as, as we go forward, we actually might do well letting go of this evidence-based driven philosophy that's really you know, sort of being fueled by uh, insurance companies in, in rehabs and actually allow our, our tradition to be what it is and speak for itself. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. Um, one thing, just how Joseph, when you had brought up uh, Soga Gakkai, like, so one of the main things they're doing is chanting together as a community. And that that seems like um, when Gary was talking before, like, uh, we need trauma-informed process, right? So I feel like um, chanting, uh, either like, you know, regular chanting or um, I remember when I was in China I went to some temples where you're chanting the Buddha's name and it's coordinated with walking meditation so it's um, it's very rhythmic and mellow and so you're you're chanting and feeling the resonance with yourself and everybody around you and you're in a beautiful environment um, and so there's this just the vibrational spiritual experience of having that so I feel like those are ways of giving some giving people something to do right away that is getting them in touch with pleasant sensation and they're moving their body and so it's it would be easier than just right away asking someone to go straight into uh, meditation without movement or use of use of the voice um and then yeah for me i feel the teachings on the links of dependent origination really resonate with me and um the just based on what I, I like Thai, the Thai forest monk Ajahn Sujato's he's got a book called the history of mindfulness where he's he really feels like the Samyutta Nikaya is like an early uh, layer within the Pali canon um, and that so it's not it's not a book that someone wrote about Buddhist addiction recovery it's literally a book uh, a collection that's the Buddha and other monastics and lay members, uh, men, women, the whole Buddhist community. Um, so it's, but it's manageable. It's like two, two volumes, but it's a manageable book, right? So that's like one thing that I think would be interesting is like reviving, reviving core texts um, and then reviving them as chanting practice. Um, to me, that would be really amazing. Um, and so then anyway, so one of the things is that the links of dependent origination seems to be the early core theory. Um, so that's what my research has been comparing early Buddhist meditation with somatic trauma therapy. And so then, so the links of contact, sensation, craving, grasping, becoming. Contact, sensation, craving, grasping, becoming. Contact, sensation, craving, grasping, becoming. That that's the the links we're experiencing over and over again and you could point them at any uh, one of the five precepts and that's the underlying thing that's happening um but then also that you can think of it as contact sensation intention action and result contact sensation intention action result and that that can be, we can steer that in a direction that's a relatively more wholesome direction. Um, and so then this idea then of 
of Buddhist practice, like through chanting, through meeting, through whatever it is we're doing. It's like we're trying to steer this thing in a certain direction that's a wholesome direction. Um, and so for me, I guess the, the, one of the main things I miss is, you know, as a monastic living in a community, like by being in a community, there are so many things that are kind of taken care of for you that put things on certain rails that move it in a certain direction. Um, so the idea of us coming together, not just to have meetings, but also like, what if we can come together around food? What if we can come together around body practice such as Pilates or yoga? What if we can come together around music? So we're forming community um, in a variety of different ways. Um, and then the other thing I'm interested in is, is, you know, how can the Buddhist practice be used as a form of somatic trauma therapy? And that could be done like one-on-one, -on -one, but also like exploring how we can do it together as groups. Um, so like if I, if I go to a somatic experiencing training, it's like everyone, there's like a group of like a hundred people and then you break out into groups of three and then you're practicing with each other, taking turns, guiding each other through body scan and then metabolizing whatever suffering it is that's coming up. And so my feeling of like, how could we as Buddhist communities form structures of practice where again, like I've said before, we're doing chanting or we're doing, um, forms of meditation that are stable and easy to do and um, can build community. And then, and then can we explore even further? How far can we take the meditation aspect of it? Not just necessarily meditating where it's like you're by yourself meditating or you're in a room of people meditating together, but even making it interpersonal body scan practice um, as a way of helping us <clears throat> cultivate wholesome states of body and mind and metabolize trauma basically. Um, and seeing that as a Buddhist practice that we're metabolizing habit energies and we're, we're coming together as a community to do it together. Um, I think, I think you yeah. touched upon a number of topics, um, that have, that have come up and, you know, Tom brought up co-regulation, you know, which, which we all know, uh, and like I was saying about sort of spiritual community, we all, we all recognize, I think at this, at this point, you know, the, the great Western tradition, I would argue, is uh, Western psychology, um, the, the wisdom tradition of the West, um, and it's young, <laughs> it's uh, not, not with a J, but with a Y. And, and, you know, we've, we've got a long way to go and we are constantly being made aware of um, the ways in which uh, Western psychology has overlooked um, other psychologies, the wisdom practices of, of other people in other places. Um, but I think there's a beautiful unfolding uh, dialogue uh, between uh, Western psych psychology and, uh, and other wisdom 
traditions. And um, this notion of co-regulation, of course, fits in with Sangha and spiritual friendship. Um, and, and, and then we also have this element that's shifted within the context of um, addiction treatment, which is, you know, recognizing trauma. Um, I don't, I, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but I know for me, the, you know, like the writings of Gabor Mate, um, you know, really sort of brought awareness for the general public um, to this different notion of where addiction kind of lives in our, in our culture. Um, and, and this notion of trauma as, uh, you know, moving away from the, the early model that we inherited from AA, which was a necessary one for them to get their foot in the door uh, in regards to the medical community of, um, you know, uh, of addiction being um, a, you know, this medical condition based on allergy, something of that nature. And, and moving more into looking at uh, trauma. Um, and, and so, you know, John bringing up somatic practices, but also the, the, the traditions that are already built into, uh, you know, thousand, 2000 year old traditions that are already built into Buddhist communities um, that kind of address some of this stuff. Uh, in, in ways that we don't readily recognize. You know, we have the scientifically proven, peer-reviewed, uh, you know, somatic experiencing. Um, and then we can also reference these traditional practices of walking in circles and chanting um, as, as uh, an, an alternative um, and, a, and a form of sort of uh, somatic therapy and and co-regulation um, and dealing with historic trauma, uh, even though it doesn't doesn't have that name. So I, I'm curious. Uh, we're running out of time, but I did want to hear a uh, uh, circle back around here from Jess again because I know that that you work with people one on one, and in, on in terms of this topic of um, uh, sort of mentoring people. And you're having an experience of working one-on-one -on -one with people um, through the unified mindfulness system uh, and, and some of the other tools that you use. And I'm, and I'm wondering you know, what experiences you've had or what successes you might've had mentoring in terms of dealing with addiction uh, or the addiction trauma connection. Hi, yeah, I'll share a little, um, trying to think of experience or clients that, you know, when we talk about addiction, I always think of attachment injuries. So I'll just speak to the attachment injury because that's kind of center at my belief around what, where addiction comes from. Uh, I've, I work with clients to support them in building their meditation practice to, relieve those specific experiences of suffering um, and also transmute them. And so that's one thing I've done is um, I'll, for example, see a client who is dealing with 
perseverating thoughts, repeating thoughts that have a quality of like criticism to it or perfectionism to it. Um, and that leads them to a feeling of suffering or suffering that's induced by interpersonal challenges. So what I help them do is practice meditation on the cushion and in their daily life um, or mindfulness techniques rather on the cushion in daily life to um, to shift that that um, the way they orient toward that inner experience and even come to end that cycle um, in, I wouldn't say in a permanent sense, but in a way where um, they can go through a meditative process that diffuses it and then shift over to more resourceful thinking or sense experiences, um, like, you know, processing it, deconstructing it using mindfulness, and then moving toward um, shifting to loving kindness, metta, um, and then very specific qualities of that. We call it in unified mindfulness, nurture positive techniques, but shifting over to nurture positive so that you're creating a, a different inner working model, mental model um, that is designed, that is I guess, designed around secure attachment. So this un internal unconditional support, compassion, curiosity, and just having that come online, it just becomes automatic procedural and somatic. And then they can experience that somatic um, activation. They've cultivated something somatically like, oh, I feel at ease or I feel, I feel at ease or safe now um, because of what I've just imagined. And so I, I teach them things like that. It's informed a lot by um, Dan Brown's work and a technique he designed called internal, I'm sorry, um, idealized parent figure protocol. And then I get confused because I also do internal family systems model. I find them very similar and they're real powerful companions to mindfulness as I, as I administer it, because I believe that mindfulness and that attentional quality of being able to concentrate on something, whatever that is, it could be, what's that anxiety, concentrating on it, sensory clarity, knowing where it is as a sensory experience um, and what it is, and then the equanimity, this non-interference with it. So that quality of being able to apply mindfulness to these sense experiences, I find is essential in then doing this more, more um, trauma-informed or direct trauma or indirect trauma reprocessing work around like leaning into this um, quality of freezing in the body or leaning into this quality of procrastination or this quality of um, self-destruction. How can we lean into those things in a way that's quite skillful? And I find that mindfulness is very helpful um, as a baseline skill set to then companion with some of these other meditative models. I don't know if that made any sense. I hope it did. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I followed it very closely, so I appreciate it. Um, we have one person, Corin, who had a raised hand and she, um, I, sorry, he or she, I'm not sure, Corin would like to say something. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm Corin and I'm a seeker. Um, many decades and many 12 different 12-step uh, programs. Um, you know, Tom had brought up varieties of religious experiences by William James, which I do have that book. And someone else had asked about that. Um, if you go to the back of our uh, big book on page 
567, the first full paragraph, William James talks about a spiritual experience. And I also had heard during this meeting, somebody share about, it basically would be uh, in the chapter of working with others. And they talked about how, uh, let me see if I can find it, um, that we, helping other foundation stone of our recovery, kindly, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here we can't, and then it, this is the part, that it may mean loss of many nights sleep, great interferences with pleasures, interruptions of your business. It may mean sharing your money and your home with counseling, frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the night or day. Your wife may sometimes say she's being neglected. A drunk may sometimes smash the furniture in a home and burn the mattress. You may have to fight with him if he is violent. Sometimes you have to call a doctor, administer sedative sedatives under his direction. Another time you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally you will have to meet some of these conditions. And just for food for thought, um, because that's that's in our AA program. I'm also in an Al, a grateful member of Al-Anon. And in Al-Anon, it, it, it kind of has a contradiction part there. And it basically would, would fall under the um, uh, category of... Uh, enabling because one of the things in Al-Anon is that we have to love them enough to let them face their consequences of their action even if it's going to cause them pain and a lot of times the reason we don't want them to face these pains it says is because we don't want to feel the pain and that's when I have I was told by my Al-Anon sponsor many years ago that I have to question my motives look at what are my motives and am I doing what's best for me because I don't want to experience any pain or fear or am I doing it really because it's a loving choice and sometimes the most compassionate thing I can do is to let others take responsibility for their behaviors and I must learn to give those I love the right to make their own mistakes and recognize them as their own. So I just wanted to chime in. I thought this was a very good meeting. Um, I really enjoyed everybody's share. And I, I just want to say um, thank you for letting me share. And uh, namaste, Satnam. Thank you so much for that. I, I just want to um, thank everybody who participated, the panelists, especially for showing up and sharing from your heart uh, uh, or heart mind, as it were. And, um, and acknowledge the breadth of experiences that we're having as uh, Dharma practitioners and as people in recovery. And uh, if, I, if I'm taking anything away from this gathering, I think it's, uh, it's sort of this notion, and it's, it's nascent, I have, I'm not sure I have words for it yet, but this notion of, um, you know, co-regulation being an idea of, 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 a, of a person to person kind of relationship, but that there is also um, a kind of systems co-regulation um, and, 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 you know, a sort of simpatico and support 
that we can bring into um, our idea of how 12-step recovery and Dharma-based recovery engage with each other. Um, you know, that, that there is a way in which I think there's a lot of um, support for each other in those programs. And, 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 uh, and I actually hope there will continue to be. I don't know, for me personally, if I need to see a form of Dharma recovery that, you know, entirely in, eclipses all 12 steps or if it's necessary for us to, to live in a world like that. Um, you know, I like, I like seeing uh, the interplay back and forth and the support that they have to offer each other. Um, so that's uh, those are some of my final thoughts. I appreciate everybody here. I could go on with this for another half hour, um, but I wanna respect uh, the schedule uh, that, that um, has been set forth. So I'd like to just um, exit this gathering with a dedication of merit to all beings everywhere experiencing any form of suffering or dukkha and particularly to those beings who are experiencing uh, the very sharp pains of suffering associated with addiction. So may they be well, may they find freedom. May all of us uh, find freedom from clinging and aversion. And may we find ways to be of service to others suffering in this world.